0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada.
1: My name is Joshua.
0: And I'm Grayson.
1: And this is a special Remembrance Day episode entitled Muster the Troops the role of the military during disaster.
0: In this episode, we will be discussing the ever-evolving role of the Canadian Armed Forces during domestic disasters, what capabilities do they bring, when and how should they be accessed, and can a military force really be integrated into a locally-led civilian disaster response?
1: To find out, we'll be speaking with former PPCLI officers Nick Grimshaw and Josh Bowen, who have a unique perspective on the topic, having worked in disaster management both inside and outside of the military.
0: All this and more on this episode of epic podcast current relevant canadian
1: so the military has a proud history of assisting canadians during disaster and that role has really only grown more prevalent in the past couple of years the military has assisted in disasters such as the hurricane uh, dorian response in nova scotia by deploying 450 troops to help clear roads evacuations and do wellness checks Uh, They were deployed again in New Brunswick and Quebec and Ontario, and uh, they filled over 1.5 million sandbags uh, during flooding responses. Their most recent role, of course, has been assisting in the COVID-19 response uh, in Ontario and uh, serving patients in nursing homes.
0: So clearly, the military has a role to play in disaster and a big role, but there's still a little bit of a mismatch between the expectation and reality of what the military can do. There are still some mixed feelings on military involvement and some potential issues with using troops uh, for a domestic disaster response. So that's really what we wanted to explore today, but just before we begin. Acronym analysis. So, listen, we are dealing with the military and disaster management here. So there is literally no way we can get you through all the acronyms that you'll need to know. Uh, We'll do our best to clarify as we go along, but for now, here are a few terms and definitions that you just can't do without.
1: All right, so the first one is a CIVI, which you might guess is a civilian.
0: (laughs) And then the next one is CAF, or CAF, stands for the Canadian Armed Forces, and this includes, of course, the Army, Navy, and the Air Force.
1: OP is Operation.
0: Uh, COP is Contingency Operation Plan.
1: And SOP, or SOP, is Standard operation.
0: That's right. So we've got OP, COP, and SOP. And then C2 is command and control.
1: RFA is request for federal assistance.
0: ROE is the rules of engagement.
1: And the familiar ones, ICS, SA, and JHA, which of course are the incident command system, situational awareness, and the jurisdiction having authority and
0: the last thing i want to mention before we get into the interview is that at no time during the episode is anyone speaking on behalf of the canadian armed forces Uh, nick and josh are both retired members and they asked me to make a special point of saying that some of their information might be a little bit dated so without further ado i give you nick grimshaw and josh bowen in what was actually two separate interviews recorded on november of 2019 which i've combined for your listening pleasure
2: Hello, my name is Nick Grimshaw and uh, I'm a uh, retired uh, Canadian infantry officer with the uh, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, served in a variety of locations, uh, deployed overseas on numerous uh, operational tours to the Balkans and Afghanistan, but also had the uh, great opportunity to deploy on what we called uh, domestic response operations, uh, primarily in the uh, Prairie Provinces. I was uh, extremely fortunate enough to command uh, the 1st Battalion of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry based in Edmonton, and uh, during that time, uh, deployed uh, to High River uh, for the floods uh, in 2013. I also uh, continued to serve in Edmonton as the uh, what we call the, the G3, or the Chief of Operations, for uh, Canada's Western Army uh, for 3rd Canadian Division, so I was the Chief of Operations and then uh, finished up as the Chief of Staff as well. And during that time, also supported in a number of uh, domestic operations, uh, wildfires in Saskatchewan and in Fort Mac, uh, Fort McMurray, Alberta. Um, and so I had a variety of opportunities to serve abroad, but also uh, support Canadians in uh, pretty important and desperate times of need. Josh? Uh, My name is
3: Josh Bowen. Uh, I spent 13 years in the Canadian Armed Forces as an infantry officer with Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry uh, and spent some time at 3rd Division, uh, 3rd Canadian Division Headquarters in Edmonton as the uh, Deputy Director of Disaster Response Planning for Western Canada.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for this EPIC podcast. I'm wondering, with your extensive background, can you help us a little bit to understand the relationship between the military and the more civilian side of disaster management?
2: The military is one of Canada's uh, federal partners to dealing with uh, domestic response, uh, disaster relief, uh, and domestic uh, disaster preparedness operations so the military is only one portion of uh, the larger government apparatus that can be brought to uh, assist provinces and municipalities in the time of need but the military has some unique uh, capabilities you know the, the ability to move people and equipment rather rapidly and so there's great many benefits to having a military uh, element included in the national response architecture, if you will.
0: How has the military organized and prepared itself for domestic response?
2: Prior to 2011, uh,
3: every... Domestic Disaster Response Operation had its own name, uh, just like every overseas operation does. In 2011, they consolidated all that and developed a contingency plan called Operation Lentis, uh, which is the overarching plan for how the Canadian Armed Forces will support domestic disasters uh, and responses uh, in support of the civilian authority, so the provinces. Across the country, there is a network of liaison officers that are from the military to the province uh, in each province. And they're depending on the size of the province, there are several regionally uh, around those, those provinces. Their entire job is to connect with the provincial authority and determine what the fire forecasts, flood forecasts are, to make sure that they're there, that they build those networks and they know what's going on. Uh, within their their area and that they're the person that will be called right away when something goes a little bit uh, south or looks like there's going to be a request for assistance required. So essentially what it means is that, that there's a standing plan uh, with resources allocated that means that the military is ready to respond in support of provincial requests at a moment's notice.
0: Now, how do you activate that plan? How do you involve the military formally in a disaster response?
2: The the mechanism that is set up is um, it's a tiered approach. So as a an emergency situation develops in a municipality, those municipal assets and first responders in the region are required to initially respond to it and then determine whether or not they have adequate resources to deal with whatever situation. So for example, a wildfire situation, first they're using their local wildfire fighting capabilities. And then once those resources are expended, uh, other provincial resources may be brought on board or uh, through agreements with other provinces or indeed other countries in the case of forest fighting or forest firefighting, I should say, uh, other assets can be brought in. And then once those are all exhausted, uh, the province can declare a provincial state of emergency and request uh, federal assistance uh, up through Public Safety Canada. In which case, it may find itself uh, moving towards the Department of National Defence and the Canadian Armed Forces, and then that request has to be authorized by the Chief of Defence Staff and uh, and operational uh, commanders. But it's very difficult, or in fact it's, it's not possible, for the provinces to request specific military capabilities. There, there is uh, certainly a tendency for when, when provinces have declared a provincial state of emergency to say things like, well, we need a Hercules aircraft to move people and equipment. We need uh, armored vehicles uh, to assist with moving people in, uh, in, in dangerous locations. You know, asking for specifics um, is not how it's, how it's done. So we, we have seen in the past where municipalities, uh, through their own personal relationships perhaps, or due to proximity, have asked for support from military units and personnel. Uh, but those requests have been repositioned or, or uh, re-engineered uh, through the proper channels.
0: You know, that makes a lot of sense. You know, ask for help and not specific equipment. So once a municipality or province has followed that very specific set of guidelines, what can the military bring to the party?
3: The biggest thing is that it is a rapidly deployable, highly organized, and self-sustaining force that can be brought forward. Uh, It's organized uh, labor with some special capabilities, uh, including communications, logistics, planning, and then a lot of mobility and transportation, either by air or by ground, the capabilities that are sent are always based on the the disaster itself in two thousand eleven when we were supporting flood relief in in the Winnipeg area. We had a lot of soldiers on the ground that were helping reinforce the dike system. And uh, we had helicopters that were there to support uh, movement of sandbags and and other things. In 2016, during the Fort McMurray uh, wildfire response, we had helicopters that were there to support search and rescue um, and transportation of equipment and personnel. And we also had uh, a Hercules aircraft there to support evacuation and bringing firefighters into and out of the the area, as well as delivering humanitarian supplies.
0: That element of self-sufficiency is so important. The last thing you'd want to do is compound the disaster by bringing a, a logistical nightmare to the scene. Is there anything the military can't or shouldn't do in disaster response?
3: military is not necessarily trained in how to conduct urban search and and rescue operations uh, or how to do all those technical, highly technical tasks. So those are tasks that are best left to professionals like those we would find in any of the uh, heavy urban search and rescue teams. There are also some limitations in terms of providing medical aid uh, that uh, can't necessarily be done Um, and then Things like emergency social services are are best left to people that do that.
0: So clearly there's a lot that the military can bring, but how is it integrated? How do you combine military federal resources with a locally-led civilian disaster management response?
2: Well, there's a lot of uh, liaison and coordination that needs to occur. So uh, what normally happens is the senior military member would move towards the affected area and uh, find the incident commander and gauge uh, what has been done to, to date and then what is what is required with that incident commander or that incident command team. What we've seen in, in uh, emergencies uh, is that those who are involved in managing the emergencies, they get tapped out fairly soon. Um, when you're working long days uh, in an incident command post, uh, you need some augmentation, you need some support and some relief, especially if the emergency is lasting more than you know, 48 or 72 hours. And again, um, what, what the military is good at, at doing is bringing, bringing capacity and bringing mass. So what we could find, and, and again, in my experience, is we had people in a variety of different elements within that incident command team uh, we would have uh, military assets within the operations section as well. We could have people augmenting the plans section to help develop uh, future plans and maintain situational awareness of the incident. Uh, so it's really uh, you know a, a variety of different roles that military personnel uh, can uh, can augment or assist uh, in a uh, domestic emergency, but also again not become an additional burden.
0: Josh, anything to add?
2: The most important thing is
3: that the military is always there as a last resort and in support of the civilian authority. So the military will never take over uh in a disaster. It, it is always there to support the province or the local authority having jurisdiction. Um, um In 2015, wildfires in northern Saskatchewan, we were taking our direction directly from Saskatchewan wildfire, uh, and then in 16, um, during the Fort Mac response, we were there as a capability and an enhancement to the province to be able to support the the things that the province needed and wasn't able to do.
0: What about this term aid to civil power? What is that, and when might that be incorporated into uh, a military involvement in in civilian disaster?
2: Well, there is a specific uh, definition of aid to civil power. Um, And it doesn't reflect truly um, what the military would do uh, or is expected to do for a domestic response operation like uh, fighting uh, wildfires or flooding. So lots of people associate aid to civil power with the FLQ crisis in the 70s, where there were armed uh, military members in support of uh, domestic law enforcement providing additional security. I have not personally been involved in a aid to civil power operation as it's truly defined. Um, however, uh, the military has been used in the past and could be used again in the future uh, for that type of operation or for things like uh, assistance at uh, penitentiaries, uh, prisons in Canada, uh, providing additional security if there was a lockout of, uh, of um, uh, jail staff for example, um, it's not out of the uh, realm of, of the ordinary that the military could be looked at to assist and provide some assistance to law enforcement in that regard. Uh, but really for a domestic response operation, such as fighting floods and fires and things like that, it's a request for military assistance. And, uh, and that's generally how it's, how it's considered.
0: So we've covered the how in terms of how the military is activated and how they're integrated into a response. Uh, We've covered a little bit of the what in terms of what can be brought to the disaster response. But what about the when? When should the military be called in?
2: It's extremely uh, challenging um, to gauge how severe uh, an emergency like a wildfire is going to be, or a flood. Um, And there's a tendency to uh, perhaps wait and just see, you know, how severe it might be. Um, and and the danger of waiting is that it, it gets beyond your capability to respond and, uh, and, and you end up in a situation where uh, they've exhausted all resources and they have no other recourse but to request the military. But by the time the request goes up through the federal chain, the response time could be... Uh, a little bit more than anticipated. and so what we are are trying to encourage, uh, certainly now that i'm I'm working with the uh, provincial authorities uh, here in Alberta on emergency management, is that continual dialogue with the military and public safety Canada, and uh, when an, an incident is starting to um, come to light, such as uh, large forest fires, or given uh, you know environmental conditions, uh, whether there's uh, a, a major uh, storm uh, moving into a province uh, that could have lots and lots of of rain with, to an already saturated ground, perhaps in the spring. Um, you know, having that dialogue in advance, uh, just to say you know here's here's what we're seeing, and so that people are paying attention to. Uh, to the potential for um, uh, emergency response. Not to say that they can pre-position assets from a military point of view, uh, but certainly uh, accelerate the uh, decision action cycle, if you will, um, so that people aren't caught out um, by surprise. So an example of this in 2013, uh, when uh, uh, I was uh, serving as the commanding officer of the 1st Battalion, Uh, we were not the immediate response unit um, for the brigade here in Edmonton. There was another unit uh, that was to be first out the door. And so when the situation started to develop and we started to get reports uh, through our basic network of of emergency management stakeholders across the province, um, our commander took the initiative to not only uh, recall the immediate response unit, but warn everybody else uh, within the brigade that there may be a requirement for additional assets. So simply by indicating that, uh, we were able to uh, posture ourselves that much more um, proactively in the event that the request did come. And, and as, it, as we found out, it did, and it came very quickly. So uh, having that early warning uh, is very beneficial to us, certainly to the military, um, and having the continual dialogue uh, with emergency management partners. But encouraging them to, you know, uh, perhaps, uh, if if possible, uh, to go big early, um, to request assistance uh, from the military um, when, when there is some doubt Uh, And by requesting assistance from the military, I mean requesting assistance to uh, Public Safety Canada um, if there is some concern that uh, things are going to get worse before they get better.
0: You know, one of my favorite sayings comes from the military, and that is improvise, adapt, and overcome. And I think that's particularly pertinent in the way that the military has adapted to the increasing demands for domestic response and, and disaster relief. How has this changing environment crafted the military. How has the military adapted to increased demand for disaster response?
3: I would say that uh, it's it's changed part of the mission for the reserves, especially in the last few years. Uh, and that's because the reserves are, are taking on more and more of that uh, domestic response task. Uh, we've seen it in Ontario and Quebec uh, and um, Uh, even B.C. in the last few years, and those responses were very heavily uh, led by the reserves, which is great because they have local knowledge, uh, and a lot of them are from those areas, um, whereas regular force troops aren't necessarily there.
0: Nick, anything to add regarding the way that the military has adapted to this increased need?
2: Well, uh, in the recent past, I would say in the last decade, as a result of increased uh, requests for military support on an annual basis, certainly in Western Canada, we, uh, we, were, we were seeing um, uh, requests for military support uh, every other year, if not every year, whether it was for uh, support to wildfires or uh, flooding. And so um, I think that the, the increased frequency of these uh, major events, uh, it has has forced the military to reconsider how units are um, trained and organized and placed on a standby sort of uh, readiness status, uh, both the regular component of uh, of the military as well as the reserves. So uh, each brigade, uh, and we have three regular force brigades in this country, uh, one in, in Western Canada, primarily based in Edmonton, uh, with elements in Manitoba, another brigade in, in Ontario, and another brigade in Quebec. And then we have a number of other operational units right across the country. But each of those three brigades is required to maintain a unit as an immediate response unit on uh, 12 to 24 hours notice to move, uh, particularly during the peak season of emergencies. So. Uh, the Army's done quite a lot actually in the last decade uh the Canadian Army to make sure that we have uh assets available uh during those peak uh seasons, which uh dare I say the peak seasons are growing uh We're seeing in Alberta the wildfire season now extending from from March until into November uh believe it or not so you know, uh, the frequency and the intensity of some of these uh, incidents are, are, are not going away. So uh, the military is posturing itself uh, in anticipation of uh, more and more of these types of activities or a desire to have military forces support the provinces. Um, but it is challenging when, you know, our, the Canadian military is is uh, has its limitations. It's not as large as some people might think. And there's a lot of uh, overseas commitments uh, for the Canadian Army, the Air Force, and the Navy. And when you add up all of those overseas commitments and the training that's required to prepare the next units to go overseas, uh, giving people some downtime after returning from overseas, there's limitations to what uh, the military can have readily available to support uh, domestic operations. So uh, they have to look at it um, in a in a very methodical way of making sure that units are identified in advance and warned off um, and uh, and prepared to deploy uh, should the request come. And what we're also seeing uh, again in the recent past is you know the utility of using military forces because you're getting trained soldiers, uh, airmen, airwomen, and sailors. Uh, who come with a chain of command, who come with equipment um, and an organizational structure. Uh, and it's very easy to absorb a group like that into a response because they already have leaders and a chain of command and, and a structure, as I said. So what we've seen in the past is, uh, for example, in Saskatchewan, uh, provincial authorities would normally give a, I believe it's a three-day wildfire fighting course to uh, people who have have no experience uh, in that whatsoever. And we were able to condense that training into one day uh, for soldiers, trained soldiers, because of the the efficiencies that uh, the military can bring in that regard. So, you know, there are some benefits to that. um, And there are some some cons to it as well, because uh, if we're looking at training soldiers to uh, be good at wildfire fighting and flood response operations. you know that adds to the already um, pretty significant training bill that they have uh, to hone their skills for war fighting and uh, overseas operations. So you know there's trade-offs with everything.
0: Thank you so much for this epic interview. Thank you for your service and thank you for everything that you're doing for Canadian disaster management.
2: Well, thanks very much. It's
1: a pleasure and I wish you all the best and keep doing what you're doing. It's great. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Great conversation there, Grayson. I think this is uh, really useful information for an emergency manager. We often hear about uh, calling the military in for disaster response. So it's a good idea to, to have a sense of what that collaboration ought to look like.
0: Yeah, and there were a couple of myths that got dispelled there as well. And the one that I wanted to further clarify was this term they talked about, the aid to civil power. You know, this is very, very different from disaster assistance or DOM ops. Uh, And it only takes place when military members are basically brought in as law enforcement and given the same powers as, for example, a police force would be given. I've heard lots of disaster managers conflate these terms. uh, But it's really important to note that they are not the same. And aid to civil power is not a Disaster response.
1: Yeah, and I think that's important. Uh, uh, so much of our emergency management training is, uh, you know, uh, influenced by by FEMA documents. Uh, important to realize that Canada has a very different legal system that does allow the military to take on uh, law enforcement roles, which is strictly prohibited. And there's a separation of powers there um, in the U.S.
0: The other topic I wanted to expand on was the overarching domestic disaster response op they mentioned, entitled Op Lentis. Now, clearly, the military has historically had a significant involvement in the response to domestic disaster. In fact, as per CFJPO1, a very typically military-titled publicly available Canadian Forces joint publication, which outlines in detail the top-level view of how the CAF works, its scope and purpose, etc., one of the CAF's six ongoing core missions was to support civilian authorities during a crisis in Canada, such as a natural disaster. However, it wasn't until very recently that this core mission actually got a name and some structure put behind it. The name they gave it, of course, is Opulentis, which Josh Bowen talked about in in the interview, and loosely translated means flexible or adaptable. Since its creation in 2011, there have easily been 25-plus individual RFAs, resulting in deployment of anywhere from 60 to 2,600 members at a time. Usually the deployments are the big landmark disasters that I think you'd be familiar with, such as the 2016 Fort McMurray wildfires or the 2018 Quebec winter storm. But size isn't everything, and uh, some of the smaller deployments included evacuating 100 people from Keshachawan First Nation during flooding in 2018, or even, occasionally, just being called upon to shovel snow, such as in the 1999 Toronto blizzards, which crippled the city, and to this day is a commonly recounted and truly Canadian disaster story. However, there are two landmark events which predate Oplentis that every Canadian should be aware of, not only because of the incredible support the military was able to lend, but also because of the way these events changed the military. The first is the Red River floods of 1997. Now, this was a massive flood in the still frequently flooded farmlands of southern Manitoba, which ended up threatening Winnipeg. In what was then named Op Assistance, General Rick Hillier took command and integrated the largest deployment of military troops since Korea, some 8,000 soldiers, which was a full one-tenth of the Canadian Armed Forces at the time, into Manitoba's Emergency Management Organization's response. Amphibious vehicles transported supplies over flooded roads, troops filled and placed sandbags, and the Air Force logged over 1,500 hours of flight time in the 32 military helicopters which were deployed. This was a particularly important mission for the military because throughout the 1990s, which are sometimes known as the military dark ages, the Canadian Armed Forces was was struggling with perception issues which stemmed from scandals that were being faced after their involvement in the Oka crisis domestically, uh, as well as overseas in Somalia. In fact, General Rick Hillier was quoted as saying, I think the Canadian public right here in the city of Winnipeg is starting to recognize that the military is a slice of Canadian society. We are your sons and daughters, your moms and dads and brothers and sisters out there working and not the fiendish people that sometimes people portray us as. The second really major event uh, that happened just a year later is of course the infamous 1998 Eastern Canadian ice storm which stranded millions of Canadians without power or the ability to travel for up to several weeks and resulted in 34 fatalities. In response to this, the Canadian Armed Forces doubled down and responded with op recuperation which was an incredible 14,000 troops being deployed again under General Rick Hillier. This made it the single largest peacetime military deployment In Canadian history to this day. So these two events truly helped to cement the military's role in disaster and also helped the military to establish the relationship that they have with Canadians today. If you're interested in learning more about this, I would point you to a paper entitled The Canadian Forces, Domestic Ops, and Public Confidence, written by Major Dan Thomas. And I'll finish off with a quote from that paper, which I think sums up the importance of the military involvement in disaster response quite nicely. Domestic operations remain pivotal to the Canadian Armed Forces' relationship with Canadians. It was the forces' response to the Red River floods and to the Eastern Canadian ice storms disasters which rehabilitated the image of the military and showed the forces at their best. And I think that tradition really has carried on to 2020.
1: And most recently, of course, there was the role of deploying troops to nursing homes in Ontario. At first, this uh, decision was, uh, I think, caught many people, including some in the military, by surprise. It's not a traditional role you'd expect to call in uh, uh, for military support, uh, but in the end, uh, it was Uh, arguably the perfect use of of those resources. Many medical trained members of the Canadian Armed Forces have basic nursing skills, and that's exactly what was needed in a organized force that could properly protect themselves and the patients they were looking after. I thought it was nicely summarized by General Vance uh, uh, when he was speaking uh, to reporters today uh, about uh, this new role. And we'll just quickly play that clip for you now. Well, I think it's a point of pride for us uh, that Uh, we will do what the nation requires us to do to to defend Canadians. And although we think of the defense of Canada and a more typical employment of the military, um, honestly, the defense of Canada can take many forms. And a pandemic is something that needs to be defended against, and we took uh, uh, that that role uh, as a function of the government asking us to do so, and I'm proud of that. So that operation was known as Op Laser and, uh, again, involved uh, multiple uh, nursing homes being augmented by uh, Canadian Armed Forces military uh, members. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Nick Grimshaw and Josh Bowen for sharing their time and expertise with us on the topic of military in disaster.
0: Just before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. This episode is brought to you in part by CPA Alberta. Might be cliche to say by now, but we really are living in unprecedented times. That's why you should consider hiring a chartered professional accountant, also known as a CPA, to help guide you through this pandemic and jumpstart your recovery. With CPA on your team, you can be confident you will be finding the best solutions to even your biggest business problems. CPAs are trained to dig in and truly understand how an organization operates, where it's already excelling, and how it can be better. For an inside look at how Alberta CPAs are supporting their clients through the pandemic, follow CPA Alberta on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn, and you can also visit CPAAlberta.ca to find out more. This episode is also brought to you in part by Alberta Forest Products Association, who has prepared a clip for you, which I will play
1: now. Alberta's forests matter to all of us. That's why Alberta's forest industry works to keep them sustainable now and for future generations. By planning 200 years ahead, helping control the spread of fire and disease, and planting and nurturing two trees for every one harvested, we keep our forests standing strong. To learn more about how our forests take care of us and how we take care of them, visit loveabforests.com. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an epic podcast production a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV. As always,
0: Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies
1: or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter At the username epic underscore underscore podcast.
0: Stay tuned for more
1: on
2: the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.